IDRC CRDI Welcome to the last stop on our grand tour around the world of cutting-edge alternatives to antibiotics for food animal production. Can you believe this is our last episode? Barely, but it's been a pretty diverse journey, from a crash course in antimicrobial resistance, AMR 101 so to speak, to phage-based alternatives to poultry farming, and in our last episode, the various alternatives being developed for aquaculture. And yeah, we hung out in some galaxies not too far far away from sci-fi territory. Bacteriophages uh, are specific viruses that would attack only bacteria. They will inject their genetic materials inside the bacteria and at, at that point they essentially take control of that bacteria and the bacteria becomes like a, a factory of new viruses. So a, a nanobubble is a very, very small bubble, less than 100 nanometers in diameter. So it has special physical characteristics that macro bubbles or larger size bubbles um, don't have. Simply put, PACAP is a naturally occurring protein in animals, including aquaculture animals. It binds directly to the membrane on the outside of the bacteria and punches holes in it. The idea is by quenching the Sydney molecules, all this behavior that somehow led to, to the pathogenicity of that bacterial pathogen can somehow be inhibited. I'm Justin Kemp. And I'm Evelyn Barrake, and this is Innovating Alternatives, a podcast about AMR and the researchers around the globe who are working to reduce it. In this episode, we meet researchers working to find solutions to a major bacterial pathogen facing pig farmers, Streptococcus suis. So there is one type of promising alternative to antibiotics that we haven't touched upon yet, one that will probably be much more familiar to everyone listening. It's a technology that's been around for hundreds of years. It's also in the news quite a bit these days. Are we talking about vaccines? Yep. Vaccines are a very powerful potential alternatives to antibiotics. As we know, antibiotics are often used in food animal production as a preventative measure against infection. In medical terms, this is referred to as prophylactic use. The word prophylactic comes from the Greek for an advanced guard. And what better advanced guard against disease than a vaccine? Right. It's the single most effective way that human beings have developed to guard ourselves and the animals we live in close contact with against dangerous and deadly pathogens. So if you as a producer were able to effectively vaccinate an animal against a disease, you wouldn't need to use antibiotics to treat outbreaks of that disease anymore. And you would no longer have the incentive to use antibiotics as a preventative measure. Exactly. But there are so many pathogens to guard against, and vaccines, contrarily to antibiotics, have to be quite targeted. That issue sounds vaguely familiar. Where have we heard that before? And that's why you will have phage uh, or phages that are specific for salmonella. You will have phages that are specific for E. coli. So there's really a specificity issue. Very familiar. Do you remember how phage researchers explained how they picked their targets? 
Oh yeah, they focused on finding phages for bacteria that drive the biggest volumes of antibiotic use. Yeah, so researchers, research funders and agenda setters working on the issue of antimicrobial resistance use the same impact-maximizing approach to pick their targets for vaccine development. So today we'll be zooming into efforts to develop a vaccine against one such pathogen that the international community has marked with a big red X on its back. Um, well, I guess the first thing is that um, the World Organization for Animal Health has identified Strepsuis as being um, one of the priority areas for vaccine discovery because of the massive amount of antibiotics that are used for treatment. Um, so the big thing is that if we can generate a vaccine, we can then hopefully reduce the amount of antibiotics that are used both for treatment but also prophylactically as well because some countries do still allow the prophylactic treatment and antibiotics to be placed in animal feeds and things like that. So if we've got a clear-cut vaccine that is useful, we can not only reduce the need for those prophylactic antibiotics, but also the need for those for treatment. That was Dr. Sharon Egan from the University of Nottingham. We'll be formally introduced later on in the episode, but first, let's get to know our pathogen. Streptococcus suis? It's a mouthful. So throughout the episode, it may be interchangeably referred to as S-suis, strepsuis, or by its full name. Only when it's in trouble, I'm guessing. Like, streptococcus suis, have you tidied your bedroom? Right. I'm going to admit that my mouth hasn't really settled on a pronunciation yet. Was it strep Swiss, strep Swiss, or strep Swiss? Anyway, let me introduce an expert on the subject to help with some of the explaining. Okay, so my name is Mariela Segura. I'm professor at the University of Montreal, and I'm the team leader of the IDRC project on Streptococcus Swiss vaccine development to fight against antimicrobial resistance. Well, I, first of all, I have been working on this uh, pathogen, uh, Streptococcus suis, uh, for several years now, uh, even almost 20 years, and uh, is the major focus of my uh, research uh, here in Canada. So what animals are we talking about with Strep suis? Well, it's in the name if you speak Latin. Streptococcus suis is a bacterium that's found in pigs. It's a major cause of mortality in the pig industry worldwide, and it's especially deadly to piglets. Oh yeah, Streptococcus. So S. suis belongs to the same genus of bacteria that gives us sore throats. That's why it's called strep throat. But how does it attack its swine host? I'll let Mariella explain this one. A septic shock with mean that the inflammatory response induced during blood dissemination of the bacteria is so severe and so high that the 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 host, either animal or human, will die of that, their own inflammatory response. I guess it's something that we discuss a lot in the context of, of COVID also. And uh, the second problem, clinical problem, is meningitis. Once the bacteria disseminates in the blood, will reach the brain, and once in the brain, will induce an inflammation in the brain, which is called meningitis and is most of the time will be fatal. Wow, that definitely doesn't fit into the minor infection category. And it's not just the pigs who should be concerned. Uh, globally, it is a major problem uh, at two levels. The first level is animals, of course, and pig farming, because it's an uh, important disease. As I mentioned, it's a bacteria that causes uh, an infection which is very severe and, and may kill the animals, or the morbidity level will be very high. And the second reason why it is an important disease is because it's a zoonotic agent, which means transmitted from uh, uh, pigs 
to humans if uh, the contact is by uh, doing a slaughtering or meat processing or just handling the animals or taking care of the animals the way of entry will be um, through a small cuts in the skin and, and injuries in the skin so if you are not using gloves and you are not uh, washing your hands and taking all the biosecurity measures required to avoid a direct contact between the contaminated meat and the hands, then you may have uh, the pathogen entering through the skin cut and then goes through the blood streams and then once in the blood stream will disseminate and cause disease. That's one way. The second way, which is very common in some of these uh, Southeast Asian countries like Thailand, is the consumption of raw meat. So you eat uh, the raw pork, the bacteria will uh, get into the intestine and once in the intestine will um, uh, breach the intestinal barrier and disseminate in the blood once again and once in the blood, they will cause disease. Okay, so it's especially dangerous to pig producers who are in close contact while rearing their animals or those who do the slaughtering and meat processing. Exactly. And it's also dangerous to consumers of raw pork products, which is fairly common in Thailand and Vietnam, the two countries where the project teams that we're speaking with today are working. Humans can get pretty sick from a strep suis infection. In Thailand, it's the second most common cause of adult meningitis. Infected people can also suffer other severe health outcomes like sepsis and loss of hearing. Well, that's pretty tough. By all indications, it's not a particularly friendly bacterium. And not to pile on, but there's also gender impacts to think about. In Thailand, women are often the ones who take care of the animals in small backyard production systems, which puts them at a higher risk. In the local, local farms, backyard farms, uh, uh, women take care of the animals and are the ones which are exposed which means they are the, at the highest risk of zoonosis and they take care of meat processing and sometimes they will even process sick animals for food. So uh, the, the economical consequences are also in link of uh, a health problem, a public health problem, because they are forced to also take sick animals for food, which is not good. Okay, so health issues aside, from the sounds of it, strip suits must also have some major economic consequences for pork producers. Absolutely. And those are especially damaging for small-scale backyard producers, women included. In Southeast Asia, backyard pig rearing operations are very common, which creates some challenges for disease control. Some pig production areas may lack disease control resources, such as vets, and there may not be tracing and inspection systems in place that can identify and control an outbreak early. And I guess it's that question again. What options do small-scale producers have when there's an outbreak? The amount of animals that the small backyard farms they have is very small. So when they have an outbreak of Streptococcus suis, uh, local authorities will arrive and will eliminate all the animals, which, be, which means that the, the economical impact is very high. To reduce the risk of outbreaks, and uh, reduce the uh, the number of animals which are sick. Uh, the farmers will use a huge amount of antibiotics to prevent disease. If we are trying to reduce the use of antibiotics, um, we will have more cases of Streptococcus suis, which will uh, bring as consequence that the farmer will will lose the animals and will lose income. I'm guessing if you only have a few pigs, calling the authorities to cull all your animals would be something you'd shy away from. And if it did happen, I mean, pretty devastating to your livelihood. And that brings us to the link with antimicrobial resistance and antibiotic use. Since antibiotics are cheap, easy to access, and they prevent infections, at least for now, there is a major incentive for producers to use them liberally. Okay, so hence the need for a vaccine. 
But taking a step back for a second, there's an obvious question. We live in a world where a vaccine for a new coronavirus was developed, tested and approved in less than one year. Strep Suisse has been around for way longer. And if it's such a priority for addressing antimicrobial resistance, what's keeping us from developing a vaccine against it? Well, there are a few major challenges to overcome, starting with the technical side of things. With this type of bacteria, I mean, uh, Streptococcus suisse in particular, uh, we have two challenges. The first challenge is because of the capsule, and we need to find a way to develop a vaccine to overcome the protected effect of the capsule. This kind of pathogen that are covered by a capsule, why the name of encapsulated, are uh, very amazing pathogens. Actually, they, they cause uh, severe infections and they, once they enter in the host, it could be an animal or, or a human, they invade, they, they persist in, in the bloodstream and they can resist uh, the attack of the immune system that try to eliminate uh, the pathogen. And because of this capsule, which is a kind of a sugar cover, uh, the, the pathogen can escape uh, the, the, the attack of the immune system and can survive and cause disease. So uh, it is very interesting to see how this uh, strategy is so good, not, not for us, not for the animals, but very good for the pathogen to be able to cause disease. Interesting. So this is a stealth bacteria. It uses its sugar-coated cover to sneak into the body and hide from the immune system. Yeah, you could say it's a pretty sweet disguise. Wow. We must have peaked on the comedy front in an earlier episode. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Okay, so that was technical problem number one. What was the second? And the second challenge with this kind of pathogen, and particularly with Streptococcus suis, is uh, that um, uh, the, the strains, so the different strains that can cause the disease, are highly variable. So uh, it is very difficult to find a unique protein or what normally is called subunit vaccine. So a unique protein, uh, which is part of the body of the bacteria, that will be enough to confer protection against multiple and very diversified strains of Streptococcus suis. It turns out that there are 35 different identified strains of Strep suis which means that an outbreak in one area might be due to a completely different strain than an outbreak a few villages over. So while there are some locally used vaccine out there against strep suis, they are only partially effective because they only protect against bacteria of the same strain. Every researcher I spoke to on both these projects mentioned this as the main reason there isn't yet a commercially available vaccine. Okay, so it's kind of like the different strains of COVID-19 that are causing concern. Yes, exactly. So how are Mariella and her team hoping to get past this? Before starting this project, uh, work on the development of a first prototype of, of this kind of vaccine that uh, target uh, the, the sugar of the capsule using an old technology, which is extremely expensive. But this allows us to prove that uh, there is potential for this type of vaccine to work. So now we are working on a more sophisticated approach uh, which is the chemical synthesis of uh, the antigen, and this will reduce the cost. So basically, we are using a new technology. Uh, actually, my colleague in University of Alberta, he's the one who is doing the conception of the vaccine, may will explain you in a better way. So, of course, I had to speak to the expert in the chemical synthesis of carbohydrate antigens himself. And yes, we will talk about antigens in a second. My name is Todd Lowry. I'm a professor of chemistry at the University of Alberta. I'm an organic chemist by training, and my group spends most of our time, most of their time making 
carbohydrate molecules that can be used as probes or tools to understand biology of carbohydrates. We're particularly interested in bacterial and other types of microbial diseases. And my role in this project is to synthesize or make uh, carbohydrate structures that are then basically the raw materials of the vaccines that we're trying to generate. All right, so let's go into the approach this team is using. Mariella and Mar- Marcello have spent a lot of their time, one of the, a lot of their career trying to define what would be good antigens. And uh, so they identified this polysaccharide as a good antigen for a vaccine. Um, and then basically we're, we've been trying to synthesize small fragments of those that polysaccharide to, and then test them to see how they are in terms of their ability to, to protect against the infection. Okay, so they've identified a particular polysaccharide as a promising antigen, and now they're focusing on synthesizing fragments of the polysaccharide to recreate it and see how well it can protect pigs against strep suisse. Sounds pretty straightforward. I can't quite tell if you're kidding, but uh, for those of us who are less fluent in organic chemistry, let's talk vocab for a second. First up, antigen. Care to take a crack at a definition? Uh, sure. I mean, it's a substance that triggers an immune response in the body. Too easy. Okay, next one. Polysaccharide. Well, I mean, a saccharide has to do with sugar, and poly means multiple, so I guess a many sugared molecule? Yep. Or in other words, carbs. So in the context of strepsuis, the sugar capsule Mariella told us about earlier in the episode is made up of polysaccharides. This capsule cloaks antigenic proteins, meaning the proteins that would tell your immune system to produce a bunch of antibodies to defend against this intruder. But Todd mentioned they find a polysaccharide that they're hoping to use as an antigen for a vaccine, which means that they hope to use it to trigger an immune response. But how does that work if polysaccharides are what make the bacteria undetectable and actually prevent the immune response from being triggered? So the sugar capsule only protects against T-cell responses, but not against B-cells, which control immune responses in body fluids, like blood, in which bacteria travel around the body. So with a vaccine, you can train these B-cells to react to the polysaccharide. But that being said, that may not create a strong enough immune system response to make for an effective vaccine. So to get around this, you can increase the body's immune response to a vaccine through a process called conjugation, where instead of just a polysaccharide, the vaccine is made up of a polysaccharide that's linked to a protein that will activate a T-cell response on top of the B-cell response. So this team is working on developing this type of vaccine, which is called a glycoconjugate vaccine. What stage is the project team at in the process of finding the perfect antigen? We're still fishing for what might be the best antigen, and so the sort of the best situation would be that we identify uh, a fragment of this large polysaccharide that's protective. There's a lot of evidence in the literature to suggest that that's it's going to be possible, based not specifically on S. suisse, but certainly for other microbial diseases, um, this, this approach has been successful. So if you've identified a small piece of this, then, then you can uh, develop a, a, perhaps an optimized synthesis to it, and then, and then by doing that, we'll lower the cost. Ah, yes, the question of cost. New innovations often face the challenge of ensuring cost-effectiveness. And that's the other big obstacle to why there isn't yet a commercially available strepsuis vaccine. I mean, it makes sense. Vaccine producers need to make it sufficiently low cost for enough pig farmers to be able to afford to use it, to recoup their R&D costs. And vaccine R&D can be pretty expensive. So uh, I think there's been, relatively speaking, a fairly small amount of research that's been done on it. And in general, animal vaccines are have not been investigated as widely simply because the the market there seems to be small. One of the challenges in developing an animal vaccine is the cost. But it's also a matter of priorities. There's just not been enough enough incentives um, 
and this is a place where governments really could probably step in and, and invest uh, a lot of money in terms of developing new strategies and new, new molecules, new, new vaccines, et cetera, for, for preventing and treating infectious disease. Really, anything's possible when governments, industry, and global leaders put their heads and wallets together on an issue. I mean, Exhibit A, COVID vaccine development. Add that to the list of things we learned in 2020. So, are you ready to officially meet our second team of researchers working on this issue? Sure, let's go for it. Okay, so my name is Dr. Sharon Egan. I'm an Associate Professor of Molecular Microbiology at the University of Nottingham. Uh, and I'm the current PI on a project uh, looking at Strepsuis um, vaccination strategies to Im- develop better vaccines for pigs in Vietnam. While this team is working on the same pathogen, Strepsuis, they're taking a slightly different approach. Okay, how so? At the top of the episode, I mentioned that Strepsuis is especially dangerous to piglets, right? So this team's focus is on protecting these vulnerable piglets in the early stages of their development. So the highest risk is for those weaning piglets. And that's when um, the piglet's immune system is this sort of critical point. Uh, so they've lost all the maternal protection from their mother's colostrum and milk. And they're starting to sense the environment and turn on their own immune systems. But they're not quite there yet. So we haven't got something that tells us what the trigger is for causing the disease in these animals. And we also often can't tell whether or not it was that disease that actually killed the piglets. Farmers are not necessarily going to go and send the carcass off for, you know, analysis by a vet because it's just more money that they just, they don't have to waste. So if we go on the loss of piglet numbers, we know that it's the main cause of piglet death in animals between uh, three to three to 10 to 12 weeks of age. Um, but we just don't know the exact numbers because it's really hard to capture that information. And instead of vaccinating the adult pigs that are already pretty resilient and robust um, to these infections, maybe we're better off looking at the sow or the mother pig um, and providing a vaccine for her. So you supercharge her immune system. So she provides more antibodies in her colostrum and milk. So as the pig piglet suckle, that antibody is going to be um, going through their mouth and their um, throat. So hopefully that that will be providing some additional protection against the disease. Right, so they're tackling the cost problem head on, since each vaccine administered will protect a whole brood of piglets. That's exactly it. But yes, if you could um, vaccinate um, the pregnant sow, it means that you have one vaccine for the mother rather than 12 vaccines for the piglets, which helps for a, for a cost-effective approach. So um, I think I think you know any farmer would be more happy to pay for one vaccine for their precious sow rather than having to pay for individual vaccines for all of the piglets. Still, I mean, this team has to contend with the same set of technological challenges that we talked about earlier. The multiple strains, the sugar capsule. So what's in their approach to finding that elusive antigen to make an effective vaccine? Well, a key aspect of this team's approach is the use of big data to find a needle in a haystack. Ah, big data. You hear that term a lot these days. But what exactly does it mean in this context? It turns out that the strep suis bacteria normally lives in pigs. So it's around all the time. And sometimes it's triggered and it causes disease in piglets. But researchers don't know why that is and what the trigger may be. Okay, but where does the big data come into it? I'll let the expert explain. I'm Dr. Adam Blanchard. I'm an assistant professor in computational biology at the University of Nottingham. 
um, and I'm the bioinformatics support for the um, Streptococcus Suis project out of the University of Nottingham. We're looking at identifying um, genes within Streptococcus suis um, that are necessary for the bacterium to grow in certain conditions or certain niches, environmental niches, um, like the pig, um, or in blood, uh, or, or um, other kind of um, competitive niches that they may come under like, from the immune response. The lab side of the protocol is growing the bacteria um, within the lab in these environmental conditions and then we sequence the, the bacteria that we get back from the experiment and then using computational approach um, we look for genes that are identified as being essential for the bacteria to growth in that condition. And then that generates a list of kind of putative targets that we look at. Uh, and then that goes into the downstream uh, analysis process, which is part of the, the dashboard that we're developing. And it'll identify uh, genes that are vac potential vaccine targets or of interest for therapeutics. Got it. So in essence, genetic information from sequencing the bacteria goes in and a list of potential gene candidates comes out. Basically. And this approach enables you to see suspicious genes that had been flying under the radar. And I guess a lot of those ones that we don't know about, we call them hypothetical proteins. And these are ones that nobody else knows much about, but we've already found a few of those that seem to be really important in early infection. Um, so uh, a lot of people haven't investigated these genes and proteins fully because there's just no idea what they do or whether they're important or not but we're able to find that oh actually they do look like they're important okay we still don't know what they are and what they do but it points us in the right direction of the sorts of proteins and genes that maybe have been overlooked in the past the hypothetical proteins another great band name they'd be the perfect opening act for age of phage okay so moving along swiftly yeah so back to the topic at hand this approach seems like it has an advantage of speed and volume. Basically, they're harnessing the power and speed of modern computing to find the perfect antigen. Definitely. And there's other benefits too. One of the objectives of this project team is to transfer the technological capabilities across borders, starting with a transfer from the UK to Vietnam. What that also helps with is to lower the cost of vaccine development. We're really excited to work with our colleagues in Vietnam as well, um, just to open some new collaborative links and to share our research knowledge between both institutes um, and to sort of start to share some of the technological advances that we have with some of the things that they're doing and sort of have a more grounded and holistic approach to um, vaccine development rather than us sitting in the UK trying to develop something that might not work for them in their country. Some of the other um, methods and techniques that are out there, you need to buy specialist sequencing machines, you need to have a specialist uh, bioinformatician who can manage all the data. With our process, you don't necessarily need that. So it means for some countries where funding may be a bit more limited, it, it's a more user-friendly approach. So it's it allows them the access and the ability to be able to utilise this technology, whereas maybe they might not have had it before. They're even building a dashboard to help with this. Who doesn't love a good dashboard? It's a user-friendly interface that people can then upload their um, sequence data um, and they can do some really quick comparative analysis. So it takes out some of the mystery and hard work 
<laughs> I guess. Um, and, it, and it means also you get a really nice visual output of your data as well. Um, and it's really super fast. So it, it, it gives you an overall package that makes you feel a bit more confident about the data that you're handling. That sounds really cool. I also spoke to Sharon and Adam's colleagues in Vietnam to hear about their side of the project. Okay, my name is Thuy, full name WNT, Big Thuy. My position is GPT Director of National Institute of Veterinary Research, which is belong to Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Development of Vietnam. So my major is bacteriology uh, field, and uh, we uh, focus on uh, vaccine development and uh, research. Here's how Twee described to me how she hopes the transfer of technology will lead to the development of a vaccine against strepsuis. We really also need the advanced technique from international collaboration. Uh, so that that's why we uh, we try to find the partner from developed country. It's like uh, Europe or other developed country to collaborate so we can uh, apply the high technique or advanced technique to help us to uh, to find a good gene or good uh, antigen uh, so that we can get the good reason after we, we uh, apply the vaccine. So that's because uh, that's the reason why we are very happy to have this project funded by IDIC and we can collaborate with uh, Nottingham University. The DC in our country is uh, currently is up here often, so we can we can take sample. But uh, we when we collaborate with Nottingham University, so Nottingham University can help us to develop the good technique uh, and find the good um, protein or, or gene. So I, we really hope that uh, it, by this project, we can find the good candidate uh, gene or protein to apply. And we, we hope we can make a good vaccine to get a good results. But like for all of us, COVID-19 has thrown a bit of a wrench in the project's team's plans, and it's making international research collaboration a bit trickier than usual, and delaying the Vietnamese team's plan to organize training workshops in the region. Our activity is pending because of uh, COVID, but in Vietnam side, we are not so affected. But however, in UK side, they have uh, been locked down for a long time, so it's really aspect to our project. So that's why the training and also conference or workshop have not organized yet. So really hope this year or we, we can do it. But, but however, it's good that we already collect the sample and uh, transfer to UK already. So now we just uh, wait for UK side uh, and apply in Vietnam. So, you know, that uh, because of COVID, it takes for uh, like a half of a year to try to transfer the sample strain and also DNA to UK. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you that now we, we have done uh, this work, so a little bit happy. <laughs> so if we succeed, I think it's very, very good 
for uh, our country. Uh, but I, I think if it's good, it's not only for our country, but for other countries as well, can apply this technique and also this gene to develop vaccine for soul. So we only need to use uh, vaccine for soul, but the piglet also have a, 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 can can be prevented by antibody transfer from soul to piglet. That I think is very very good idea. If we succeed, so we can announce or we can share with other group and other country about that. This is great. I mean, both teams sound like they're onto some very promising approaches. Yeah, they're all harnessing the power of international cooperation and cutting-edge technology to make strep suisse a thing of the past. Okay, but let me be pessimistic for just a moment. What happens if a vaccine against strep suisse isn't developed in the near term? Well, the stakes are pretty high. There are two scenarios to consider here. In the first, we continue using antibiotics to prevent and treat strep suisse and pig production at the same rate that we do today. In the second, we severely restrict antibiotic use in the pork industry to protect their efficacy. Which scenario would you pick? (laughs) Sounds like one of those choose-your-own-adventure books. Okay, let's say governments restrict antibiotic use so they stay effective for humans. Well, it turns out that some countries are moving in that direction, including Vietnam. And it's a big problem in uh, in our country, in in in, uh, in especially in animal production, uh, especially in uh, in pig and uh, poultry uh, uh, production. And then our government has a plan to uh, step by step uh, restrict the microbiome using, uh, restrict uh, limit uh, using the. Uh, anti uh, anti microbial in um, animal production and uh, in uh, food. The national soldiers right now we are encouraged in research institute or big producers find a way to uh, create, uh, uh, develop, uh, and develop uh, develop vaccine uh, to. Uh, um, uh, the problem is, the incidence rate of S2S is currently kept way down due to antimicrobial use. So far, there is no effective commercial vaccine to prevent this disease in swine. And um, people uh, to keep uh, the incidence rate of disease in animals, which normally could be around 20%, but uh, is is kept lower than that. Uh, it's reduced to up to 5% of incidence because the extensive use of antibiotics in a preventive way. And in Southeast Asia, like in Thailand, the governments are trying to make a major effort to reduce the use of antibiotics as preventive measure, which means uh, reducing the use of, an, uh, of antibiotics in, in, in food, in livestock production. But what happens if you remove the use of antibiotics, what is being done right now in Europe, for example, you will have an increase in clinical cases of Streptococcus suis. <laughs> so you will, have, you will have more disease in animals. And if you have more disease in animals, you will have more sonotic cases in, in the human population. So it will be a kind of... Uh, chain reaction. So yes, we, re- we remove the antibiotics as we are expected to do. And then if we don't introduce a vaccine to protect the animals against the disease, then the animal will get sick. And if the animal gets sick, more people can be contaminated as well. 
Wow, so based on what Mariella said, infection rates could quadruple from 5 to 20 percent? Yeah. More sick pigs means more pig mortality and also more sick pork producers and handlers who are in contact with these animals. And lots of economic hardship too. All right, so that scenario is not much good. What about the second option, where antimicrobial use in the pork industry doesn't really change and an alternative way of preventing strep suisse isn't developed? I can hear the AMR alarm bells ringing. Well, what are they saying? Well, I mean, it's the same story we talked about in the primer episode, really. Areas where pork production is highly concentrated become evolutionary accelerators for strep suisse. More and more resistant strains emerge and the antibiotics become less and less effective and the incidence and mortality rates start to climb. Right. So then we're basically back to the impacts of scenario one, but with fewer effective antimicrobials and more resistant bacteria. And knowing what we know about gene swapping, strep suisse bacteria that have developed resistant genes could pass them along to other species, including some that are even more dangerous to humans. Yeah. And that's a major reason why strep suisse specifically is such a focal point in the AMR problem. The other really scary thing is, too, that um, streptococcal species are really good at swapping around their DNA between each other and also related bacteria. So streptococcus causes problems um, and causes meningitis in humans, um, but also there's a number of other related human streptococcal diseases, um, streptococcus pneumoniae, for example, um, streptococcus pyogenes and agalactiae, Um, And they all cause sort of various respiratory, meningitis, septicemia, um, diseases in humans. So if we start getting this swap of all these um, antibiotic resistance genes between different species, we're going to have more of an issue with antibiotics that we use to treat our diseases not working for us either. So not only will they not work in the veterinary world, but they won't work in the human medicine world either. And that's really scary. I guess this begs the question, how much resistance is already out there? Was that something that any of the researchers talked about? Yes, Adam had some pretty concerning numbers to share. I found a really interesting paper, actually. It was actually based in Vietnam. And it was saying that about 99% of strep isolates have at least one resistance gene. So each isolate is resistance to one gene. Um, but about 5% have 17 different resistant profiles. So And there could be multiple resistances in one isolate. And the project looked between 2006 and 2016 and saw a 20% increase in resistance to cephalosporins, which are kind of human important, um, and a 20% increase to resistance in gentamicin and a 4% increase to a 90% resistance to oxytetracycline, which is one of the most commonly used ones for kind of veterinary medicine, um, and also a 10% increase to resistance to penicillin. So that was, what, near five years ago now? So if that same level of resistance increase is happening in a couple of years, antibiotics aren't going to work against strepsis infection. So the case for vaccines is pretty clear cut. Yeah. And luckily, it seems that legislators and potential users already seem to be on board to promote and use this vaccine when it becomes available, provided it's effective, of course. Quality of the vaccine is also very important. If the quality is good, uh, even the price a little bit high, so they also still using. Because compared using vaccine with uh, using antibiotic, so uh, pharma still choose vaccine if the vaccine gives a good results. But there will need to be some significant cross-sectoral collaboration and educational campaigns as well. Right. I mean, we can't talk about vaccines without talking about educating and dispelling myths, can we? 
These projects are still relatively early in the vaccine discovery process though. So when should we start working with end users to understand potential concerns, to get ahead of any pushback? And, and once we, we think we've got, got it right from our clinical trials, then for the next step, we need to make sure we ensure that we're engaging with the smallholder farmers and we're getting them on board with our vaccine trials as well. Because if it's there at the grassroots, we've got more chance of you know, identifying any problems in communication, um, but also getting the right message across through them as well, which I think is really important. I suppose at the moment, antibiotics are considered cheap and cheerful, aren't they? So um, they, but at the moment, they still work and they do a really good job in, in protection and they can be made at relatively low cost. Um, vaccines are going to be more expensive because of all of the input into the safety and how you make them and, you know, making sure that they are effective but also safe for use. When we're talking about vaccines at this current point in history, it's hard not to draw parallels with the COVID-19 pandemic. So one other worst-case scenario that was mentioned was the risk that a new pathogen that's incredibly dangerous to humans and highly transmissible emerges. For instance, a bacterial disease that's picked up some of Strepsuis's resistant genes. Yeah, I mean, that's a scenario we can all conceptualize pretty clearly now. And this just throws a spotlight on how incredibly important it is to invest in this type of research on preventative solutions for neglected diseases of livestock in terms of global health, livelihoods, and pandemic prevention. I guess what the COVID provides us in the positive way is that people now understand science more. It's much easier now to explain what we are doing. It's much easier now to explain why we need a vaccine. Uh, we, it's much easier for us to explain that we have variants and the vaccine may be good or not again variants. Uh, so it has, does help a lot. Vaccines are important, are amazing tools that we have and have been proven to be extremely successful to eradicate diseases. So we need to keep doing research on vaccine development because it's the future. In, in animal diseases, we need also to think ahead of having an outbreak. I mean, because it, it's, when the outbreak appears, it's too late to, to develop a vaccine. As COVID was an exception because we 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 have vaccines developed in less one, than one year, but it will not be the case for all the diseases, and it will not be the case for diseases in animal or in veterinary medicine. So we need to be prepared, and we need to work in advance and not wait having the problem or not, not wait to have the fire and then to try to erase it because it will be too late. But these projects really showcase why there's reason to hope when it comes to these kinds of major human and animal health crises. Because minds from all over the world are putting their head together to work on them? Precisely. Emphasis on the word together. I think one thing it has highlighted is how well we could all work together if we have funding and if we share our ideas and we share our resources, how fast we can turn around something that could be considered really quite, you know, negative and, and you know, a devastating disease. But if we all pull together and actually share our resources, plan together, share our ideas, which is actually what happened with COVID, like that, that turnout of papers and the discussion and the collaboration between labs has led to us being able to have a number of fantastic vaccines that are actually working. So if we could apply that collegiate approach and not be 
fighting each other for funding or fighting each other to get those papers out and work more together, then do you know what, maybe we could make a lot more progress a lot more quickly um, in some of the things that we're working on um, in, well, animal health world, but also the human medicine world as well. Right. So teamwork makes the dream work. Indeed it does. And maybe that's a good thought to leave on. So this concludes our series on antimicrobial resistance and the international researchers who are working together to develop alternatives to antibiotics. Or does it? Stay subscribed and find out. There may be a bonus episode in the works. For everyone wanting to learn more about the podcast, read the transcript, or get in touch, visit on the podcast's homepage linked in the show notes. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And thanks for listening. Bye for now.